Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. We're also grateful to those of you who offer member support, for which I'm pleased to offer in return member-only content curated with our authors and myself. You can find out more about this member-only content and how you can help authors give voice to their written words at charlottereaderspodcast.com. When Landis is not getting under the cover at bookstores, at events, and on the road, he does it in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. But enough with the prologue. Let's get under the covers. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Rears Podcast. I'm here today with Rachel Brooks, and we're talking about uh, her book, Beads, a memoir about falling apart and putting yourself back together again. A note to listeners, this episode will contain a discussion about rape, including what Rachel experienced in her journey back from that dark place she landed on June 29, 2008. The book has been described by reviewers as a book with painfully raw details, written with such candor and vulnerability, and with a rare and wonderful voice. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you're down here in Charlotte. You you live in the Raleigh area, right? I I do. (laughs) And you're here for an event tonight, right? I am. Yeah, we're recording uh, here in March. Uh, Thank you, first of all, for your courage to write this book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and congratulations on completing it. Thank you. Because <laughs> that's, that's part of it, right? It's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> part, part of it. So let's, let's talk first about you. Um, you currently live in Raleigh with your husband and two children, right? I yeah. do. And uh, are they, they kind of like preschool age? Are they in school? <laughs> yep, they are. Uh, so I have a um, almost five-year-old and almost two-year-old, two uh, red-headed boys, and they're mm. um, awesome. They're Crazy, full of energy, keep they, keep us on our toes. Are there still the terrible twos? Is that, you know, it, we've had phases in every year. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's every year has been you know God's it's it's got its ups and downs. Now you say in your bio you graduated from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and that you are a diehard Carolina basketball fan. Go Heels! What are you saying this day, this I, year? Oh man, <laughs> it's a building year. Okay, yeah, building we're year. Uh, yeah. we're. We're we're sticking with them though. <laughs> so you it used to be you know we're looking forward to basketball season when football season is now you're looking it's forward to football season. Football right? season's looking pretty good yeah. this year. So Rachel, your life uh, took a turn in June of 2008 when you went to uh, D.C. for a summer internship after college, but before before graduate school, what happened? So I uh, had graduated from college in May of 2008 and was going to Washington, D.C. for an accounting internship and uh, planning on headed heading back home to UNC Chapel Hill at the end of that summer. Um, I went out with a few friends of mine, 
that Saturday night. And as I was getting ready to take a cab home, uh, cab driver took a little bit, um, was a little bit delayed. And once he finally arrived, um, I was very relieved because it was quite early in the morning. Um, and I, I just wanted to get home. And unfortunately, this cab driver was not who he said he was. And he pretended to be on a, a phone call. So I, I did not um, have any worries initially. Um, he was pretending to be on a, a call with another customer, allegedly. And um, that quickly turned into him pulling the car over on the side of a dark highway and um, turning the car off. And at that point, I realized that something was not right. Um, I was in the front seat of the car, not having too much experience with taxi cabs in mm-hmm. my life, coming right. from such a small city in Chapel Hill. And um, I had only been in Washington, D.C. for a couple of weeks, so I didn't know exactly where I was, if it was D.C. or Virginia. Um, and unfortunately, he um, proceeded to, in one fair swoop, um, throw my uh, the front seat back and and climbed on top of me and he had a knife and um, whispered the words if you try to get away if you scream if you fight me back I will kill you mm. and so at that point I really went into a um, a, a flight or fight standpoint um, and and essentially um, went frozen from there and I told myself just do what you need to do in order to get out of this alive because I at that moment in time was not entirely sure that I was going to make it out alive. Mm. Um, he did proceed to rape me, um, eventually dropping the weapon, thankfully. Um, and he ended up, uh, dropping me off about a block from my apartment. Didn't take my purse. Um, didn't rob me of anything physical. Um, and, from there, um, just basically started the whirlwind of uh, my experience yeah. with the justice system. And yeah, you, you, from there, you had to deal with not only the physical and emotional trauma associated with being raped, but you you were you were kind of in a relationship at the time and, and with with a boyfriend, and that kind of fractured. That you did return to graduate school, and you eventually graduated. But uh, having read your book, uh, it was very difficult. I could see for you during this period. Uh, even when you tried to return to school, and then you returned to D.C. because then the legal system started kicking in and adding more stress to your life. How did you cope with that? Uh, Not very well. Um, My rape kit sat for a year and a half um, before it was tested, and so during that time I drank heavily. I would put on this face um, when... I was sober and um, going to work and or school just to uh, prevent others from seeing my secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got really good at this kind of alter persona um, that nobody would ever have guessed what I was actually feeling on the inside. And so when I would drink, it would be my release in a way where I would experience triggers and I would have nightmares and, um, and that is basically how I coped. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also in very intensive therapy, um, sometimes going to twice a week. Um, I was also, um, on medication to help with anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, but overall it was a very, very dark period mm-hmm. of, 
um, my life where it was parts of it were definitely a bit of a blur where I was just going through the motions and um, trying to move on the best that I could. And I had not at that point heard anything about my case, mm-hmm. which um, was kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, but you go into length in your book about the justice system and, and what happened and how you were treated. And while there were some people in the system who were your advocates, uh, there were so many delays and stumbling blocks. And then the rate kit having sat there without even being tested for a period of time all weighed on you, I could tell from, from the book you'd written. So it, uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's interesting that today, as we record this March 11th, the news came out that Harvey Weinstein hmm. was sentenced to 20-plus uh, years in prison for rape and sexual assault, the man who sort of launched the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious as I was coming over here today what Rachel would think about that news. How did that hit you? Uh, it's funny that you say that. My mom actually read that headline to me while we were driving down here to Charlotte. And um, to be honest, I, uh, well, first I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. And um, I was a little shocked that he got sentenced for that period of time, because I think um, it really shows the severity of what he did. And um, I think that it sends a great message to um, perpetrators and victims and um, just, you know, that this case was, I think, the first in a really long string of cases that was finally taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's very, um, it's, you know, may encourage others to come forward and others to report without feeling like it's going to go nowhere. Yeah. And you are, um, a sexual violence prevention speaker. And I assume from what I read in the book that part of writing this book is, is giving you an opportunity to go out there and turn something that was really painful in your life to something that uh, is able to help others. Am I right about that? Yes. Okay. And you're on the board of directors of a company called Interact of Wake County. It's a nonprofit. I am. Yeah. Yes. What, what do they do? So, Interact of Wake County. They are a nonprofit. Um, they provide services to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And I have been a survivor speaker with them for the past seven years, mm. and uh, was asked to be on the board this past year. So, mm. I was very, very honored to take that position and continue um, my work that I do there. And um, you know, learning more about the organization and all the services that they provide anywhere from the crisis hotline to therapy, um, to a women's shelter for women and children. Um, it truly is a, just a, a wonderful organization to be a part of. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the book a little bit. You ready to get under the covers? Let's yeah. do it. If you like our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, please consider leaving a short written review about Charlotte Reader's podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you leave a review, it helps authors reach more listeners. You can keep up with news about the show and member-only content for our member supporters by joining our email list. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join the list, we will give you a free ebook written by me. The first book in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Okay, so first of all, you've got a title here, Beads, and uh, it looks like someone on the cover 
they're, they've got their head tilted down. They're actually doing something with beads. Mm-hmm. Tell us, I know the answer, but tell us the significance <laughs> of beads. <laughs> so, um, the title, I did not start out with this title, and uh, there is a chapter in the book that is titled Beads. And as I was writing this chapter, it really resonated with me, and I and I began to realize how, um, how important these beads were to me. Uh, and so after the rape happened, a couple of days after, my, my mom had been up in D.C., and uh, my parents have a mountain house outside of Boone, North Carolina. And my mom decided that we should go to the mountain house. And, yeah, and mom, just, mom swooped in and grabbed it, you and yes, you took off. Right? Exactly. Yeah, found, found your way to the mountains. That's and, right. And uh, you, you started with the bees. Okay, well, that's great. So the structure of the book here, uh, you, you tell this story from beginning to the present, and you don't hold back. I mean, it, it's there were times when I'm reading this book almost – felt like I needed to look away, right? Because mm-hmm. it was hard to accept, you know, what was actually happening mm-hmm. on the page to you and what you're having to go through. Um, you know, how you were treated by the detectives, uh, then the bureaucracy of the court system. Was it hard for you to relive these events uh, in writing this book, or was it somehow helpful you to put this story down on paper? I would say it was more helpful than hard. Um, I felt very exhilarated while I was writing it. Um, like the, the words could not get onto the page quick enough. Um, and I just poured out, poured out. And I, the more that I wrote about my experience with the justice system, the more I felt I needed to just include everything that I could possibly remember because, um, I know that my case is not the only case, sadly, that, that, um, goes through the ringer with regards to the justice system. And And what what was the main problem you had with the justice system? Um, really, well, there were uh, several. Yeah. Yeah, we, don't have, um, we don't have an hour, I guess. So, yeah. yeah um, I, I, the, the rape kit was one thing you mentioned. The rape kit, yeah. um, sitting for, for a year and a half, and um, also just the, the detectives and how I was treated. And the rape kit, the problem there in part is not just for you to move your case along, but also if they had done the examination that I might have found this person sooner. Correct. And not he wouldn't have contributed other Correct. Crimes. And I and I try my hardest to not harp on that, but that mm. is the truth. And then the detectives, I, I like the fact that you injected a little humor and fortitude into your book because you named uh, your rapist. You want to tell us his name? I named him Shithead. Right. And you called the detectives? Detective Dickhead number one right. and Detective Dickhead number two. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I was laughing at that. I thought, <laughs> well, that's a way to take control of the situation. Right? It is. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't right. want to give them the nicety of, of their real names. And, so. p- and part of the issue there with the detectives, and you might tell it briefly, but uh, right after you'd gone through this trauma— it's almost like they're not really believing you because, you know, you'd right. been drinking that night. Yep. You know, you've been out partying. They they made these assumptions. And then the next day they're driving you around and to, to try to find these places that you can't remember exactly where you right. were because you weren't paying attention in the, in the in cab. In the car, right. And then the, I don't know if it's dickhead number one or number two, he says, well, let's stop to get a, some coffee or something. Right? Yep, yep. So we're uh, headed back to the precinct after an hour of driving around trying to determine if this took place in Northern Virginia or Washington, D.C. Um, unfortunately, was never able to determine it. Um, so on our way back to uh, the sexual assault unit in downtown, he 
um, turned his siren on and pulled up on the curb in D.C., went into a Starbucks and got himself a muffin and a latte while mm. I'm sitting in lots of evidence, um, dirty, dirty clothes, uh, hadn't showered, brushed my teeth, couldn't eat or drink again to preserve that evidence. And um, he just had no, um, no problem doing that. So, so in addition to the humiliating uh, way you were treated there, the whole jurisdictional thing became important because it was which, which jurisdiction is going to prosecute right. the person if they find them, right? Right. And uh, so that turned out to be a whole other segment of the book, which you probably don't have time to go to, but it's very you know, interesting in the sense that, that how one jurisdiction would have enforced the law versus the other would have been yes. harsher, right? Yes. Because in the very end of this story, this guy goes to, what, a mental institution? He does. So ultimately the case... Um, it's decided that the case is going to be tried in, in D.C. and, um, you know, talk about feeling like a statistic, uh, essentially right. just being ping-ponged back and forth between the two jurisdictions. And um, D.C. is a, was a little more uh, lenient with their mental competency. Um, and I, I won't, I guess, ruin it for readers. But, sure. um, right. yes, my, my attacker did have to spend some time or I should say got to spend some time in a mental facility to determine if he was competent to stand trial. Right. Okay, so we uh, we do a little reading on Charlotte's podcast, and we're going to have a reading now that uh, actually, it, 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 despite the things we've been talking about, is sort of a hopeful message that you leave uh, for readers uh, toward the end of, of your book. And uh, we're going to have you read that, and then we're going to come back and talk about the writing life segment a bit and maybe a few other questions. So... Uh, Let's find that that read. I have dreams and plans for the future. The future used to be unstable, non-existent even. It was a day-to-day existence for a while, but now I have dreams. I want to make a difference, both within my family and for humankind. I want to be heavily involved in my kids' schools and would love to be a room mom alongside the teachers. I want to help plan the parties, chaperone field trips, get supplies for the teachers. It may sound silly, but it is a dream of mine. My mom was a single mother who worked full time, and I wouldn't change my childhood for a second. But when my little brother was born and my mom took a year off work, she attended everything at school, and I absolutely loved it. She always told me if she could have stayed home full time, she would have, and I now have that opportunity, so I'm embracing it. From a humankind standpoint, it seems like every time we turn on the news, there is another rape case to be solved, another predator on the loose. These stories are happening locally, nationally, and globally, and it's heartbreaking. My hope is for my story to change that at least a little. If my journey can help reduce the number of horrific attacks we see by just one, I will feel I have done my part. It's not only about raising awareness, which is critically important. It's also about prevention, what to do, and how to cope with the aftermath. My case could have gone in an untold number of different directions, but it ended the way it did, and I had to deal with that the best I knew how. Changing one person's life, one person's path, one person's will to live would allow me my dream of making a difference. Life is a funny thing. One day you're about to die, and the next you're living, living this beautiful life, Somehow, I managed to take something awful and turn it into something productive, something hopeful, and something beautiful. I did that. Shithead may not have taken my life that night, but I am the one who decided to keep living. No one can ever take that strength from me, and if I can do it, anyone can. Trust me. So, Rachel, that's, that's a wonderful um, tribute to what you're doing now and, and your recovery, and uh, 
I would be interested to know, uh, before we do writing life, uh, how are you doing now? I am, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Good. Um, that's, that's good. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, um, it, it definitely sticks with me. It doesn't right. define who I am, but it is a part of who I am. Um, right. I still, um, go to therapy here and there. Right, right. I'm still on medication to mm-hmm. manage anxiety, um, mostly these days. Um, but overall, um, yeah, I've, I've really made it to the other side of, of the trauma. That's great. And, uh, your mother is sitting here with us. She's being very quiet as we do this, <laughs> but uh, she probably wasn't quiet uh, at the time, right? She was Correct. very much uh, she was, she one, was of, my your, partner in one crime. of your vocal supporters. So <laughs> yep. Does she help you come up with the nicknames for these guys? Oh, <laughs> she she helped with more than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Let's talk writing just a second. Uh, did you take a memoir class before you did this, or did you just let it flow and come back later and get some feedback and what? You know, I uh, was a... a former tax accountant in my That's why I ask. It's not like you, you know, we don't think of tax accountants as writing books. Yeah, yeah no. Nope. Except, <laughs> except the kind you don't want to read. Ex- yeah? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, my, my, my writing uh, story is, is definitely unique where I um, had never written anything. I never took a, a writing class. Um, I was a business major in college and have my master's of accounting. And so I you know, when the Me Too movement hit, I it really impacted me heavily, and I and I just thought, you know, w- what if I start just write, writing, just, just tell your story, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was um, spitballing some ideas back and forth with my husband, and mm-hmm. um, started out just taking some notes on my iPhone, and really, once I hit the computer. It was uh, pretty free flowing from there. Did you write in bursts uh, at different times? Do you have a routine? Were you? I, yeah. I did. Yeah. I, I wrote in bursts. Um, mm-hmm. I, I put it down for for several months. You know, tried to talk myself out of this crazy idea that mm-hmm. I had. And um, after I was uh, taken up as a client from my editor, I really put my head down and. Um, gave myself a goal for, mm-hmm. of, of word count for about three months. So that was the bulk of the writing. Was there a point, because some memoirists will say they'll get started on a book and then they, they finish it and they've been brutally honest and they think, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to put this out in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Did that go through your mind? It sure did. Yeah. Um, I, I pared um, some of the language down a bit. Right. I think yeah. I, I found myself at times getting really heated and, and really right. let the curse words flow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, But aside from that... Um, Really, I, I stuck with all of my truths. Um, few mm-hmm. few things here and there that I took out or didn't put in to begin with, but um, yeah. And you talk in the book about how you are a survivor, and what what does that mean to you to be a survivor? So I think being a survivor um, is is someone that um, can really a- adapt from um, being this victim that. Um, really comes forward and um, has is very accepting of feelings and honest about them and um, you know not necessarily ready to you know, share it with the whole world but just um, coming to terms with the fact of of the trauma that I experienced mm-hmm. and not letting it get the best of me um, I think it's important that, you know, it, it, it 
doesn't define all of me. It, it is a part of me. And right. I think once, once I realized that I, I realized how strong I was and how much I had overcome. Um, when I look at the story as a whole, just, um, you know, cause when you're, when you're in it, it's hard to see everything that you've, that you've gone through. Yeah, um, and in some parts of this memoir, you're dispensing advice from your perspective based on what you've been through. Um, and you probably talk about this and, and just in, in, in a nutshell, what, what advice would you give to someone who's been a victim and doesn't know what to do or where to turn? So my biggest piece of advice would be um, to, to tell one person. Um, it doesn't have to be law enforcement. It doesn't have to be a therapist. Um, I think being able to confide in one person and um, not feeling alone in that sense is, is my biggest piece of advice. Because if I did not have my amazing support system that, that was not very big. Um, you know, it consisted of a few really good friends and and close family members. Um, I don't know that I could have healed in the way that I did. Who who was the first person you called? My mom. Yeah. Yeah. She's still, still here. Still here. Yeah. Yeah. Supporting you all the way through it. Yeah. Through and through. Uh, do you plan to continue to tell your story? I do. I, I think that sexual assault has come a long way in, in, um, in the way of awareness and, and more and more people talking about it. But unfortunately I think that, um, even over the past decade since my attack happened, there, there's still things that haven't changed. Um, I think the rape kit backlog is something that's uh, very important that I'm very passionate about ending. Um, and you know, I, I think, my story is an important one to tell. Um, and what, why does that backlog exist? You know, I, I think for many reasons. I, I think that um, one of them being that uh, victims are, are not always believed. Um, and I think that if a sexual assault is not connected to a larger case, such as a murder, I think it's um, just... It goes on the back burner, and I think that, unfortunately, that happens across the board, and um, all of a sudden, you have a a lot of back burners where kits are just sitting on the backs of shelves in in police stations, and so before you know it, it it just gets out of hand, and more important cases uh, come to the forefront, and so that is something that I I think it's great that North Carolina is very focused on. it was a long time coming, but it's better late than never. So we got time. One final question here. Um, what has writing this book uh, meant to you uh, in your journey? Um, let's see. So many things. Um, it's still very surreal to me that um, that I wrote this and that my story is, is out there for um, – for people to read and relate to. Um, I think the, the biggest piece for me is be, is making those connections with other survivors or, or people who, um, who know a survivor and, uh, really, you know, just seeing how prevalent this, this is, it makes me very proud to, um, relate and connect with people on that, on that level. Cause I think it's just very important for, um, people to have someone to relate to. Well, as I said, I uh, I sat down one evening, uh, started it, 
finished it. Couldn't wanted to turn <laughs> away at times, but couldn't couldn't turn away at times. So uh, you know, kudos to you for for completing this and getting it out in the world, and for using it as a platform to uh, to help others. That's probably as important that. as anything. So. Thanks. Uh, listeners, you're, you can find information about the book and also about Rachel and some uh, links and photos and that kind of thing in the show notes. So, uh, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written word. Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author. But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life of a local or regional author. Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone. If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter. We'd love to have you as a member. And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me. Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media. Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me, or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions? You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.